Hey. Oh God, our Emmanuel, God who is with us. God, let us be aware, be aware of your presence with us this morning as we come to hear your word. Speak through me, O oh God, and prepare our hearts and minds to hear what it is you have for us. Speak, O oh Lord, your servants are listening. Amen. Have you ever thought that something was totally gone and you would never see it come back? I had this experience uh, recently with all things uh, with the Super Nintendo. Yeah, and uh, some of you are a little bit older than I am, so I might need to explain what that is. And uh, so if you don't know what the Super Nintendo is, it was a video game system that came out in 1991. And so millennials like myself grew up in these kind of, you know, these games, Super Nintendo and the original Nintendo and maybe Nintendo 64, that kind of era of video games. I think the best era, in my opinion. And uh, so, and I thought, you know, these, these, were, these games, these are so outdated. You know, you have to take the cartridges and you, you know, you, remember doing that? You had to blow into them, blow in the machine and try to put it back in and hit reset a bunch of times. Uh, that, was, that was glorious. That was glorious. And you thought, you know, these things are so outdated, you think they would never, ever come back because... You see these systems that they have today. I mean, they are, they are the 3D, you got the Xbox X and all kinds of online stuff. It's, it's incredible what they can do now with video games. Uh, but I have good news of great joy for all the people. <laughs> the Super Nintendo has made a comeback. It has made a comeback. My neighbor, uh, he recently showed me, they came out with this thing called the Super Nintendo Classic. And it's a remake of the Super Nintendo. It's got HDMI connected to your TV, and they've loaded the 30 best games on that. So I've wasted a lot of time this past week. <laughs> Actually, not really. It's been a good source of recreation, but it's made a comeback. It's something I never thought I'd see again, but it made a comeback. In the same way in Israel, things had gotten so bad, people thought, could anything ever come back? Could we ever make a comeback? Could we ever see our nation restored again? Because things have been so dark. Things have been so uh, difficult for the people. They might have thought, gosh, is there any hope for us to make a comeback? See, Isaiah's time was a dark time. And if you were here with us last week, you'll remember that the superpower of Assyria would come from the north and bring destruction. Towns would get destroyed. Homes would be destroyed. People's livelihoods would be gone. And it was a dark time. And people thought, could there be any hope for us? Could we ever make a comeback? And so Isaiah was sent to preach and to prophesy during this dark time. And actually, God tells him that no one's going to listen to his message. <laughs> Can you be, yeah, would you like to be, how would you like to be sent out on a mission, mission that you'd be told was, was absolutely going to fail from the start? But this is, what, this is what God tells Isaiah. So in chapter 6, I'm going to put this on the screen for you. Uh, Isaiah says back to God, well, until when, Lord? Until when do I got to keep preaching this? And God replies to him, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. So in other words, God is telling Isaiah, the nation of Israel, though it was a big forest, is going to be totally chopped down. And not only chopped down, it's going to be burned up again. And only a stump would remain, but the stump would be a holy seed that would be left in the land. So to understand the hope of the Messiah that the people had, you have to understand the depth of destruction 
in judgment that they experienced. If you don't go to the dark place, you're never going to understand the hope of the light that they received. So God was going to use Assyria to bring judgment on the people for their many sins, a false worship of disregard for the poor and of injustice. And uh, one more from Isaiah 10. This is right before the passage for us this morning. Isaiah 10 says, Though your people be like the sand by the sea, Israel, only a remnant, a small amount of people, will return. Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming and righteous. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, will carry out destruction, the destruction decreed upon the whole land. You can probably see why Isaiah was not a popular preacher. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, how many people like to be told, you're being judged for your sins? I mean, we don't really like to hear that, do we? But this is what Isaiah was saying. But even in spite of such a difficult message, God still had plans for a good future for the people. You see, the prophetic rhythm of preaching was almost always, there's a message of judgment, but there's also a message of hope. There's going to be plans for a good future for you. And so Isaiah, he was sent to preach this message that Israel was going to be like a forest that was cut down, by Assyria. But after this time of judgment, Isaiah proclaimed a message of hope in this promised king, in this Messiah, this Savior who would come and restore all things. And that's the promise we're going to look at this morning. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to be walking through the first 10 verses this morning. And Isaiah gives wonderful things about this promised king. Last week, we also talked about the promised king out of Isaiah 9. So this is kind of part two. Who is this promised king going to be for us? And there's a few things that Isaiah tells us. The first is, the promised king will reestablish the throne of David. The promised king will reestablish the throne of David. Verse 1, Isaiah begins this message by saying, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Now, that, this is actually a very personal verse for me, and I'm going to touch on that later in this sermon. But what Isaiah is saying is that this nation is cut down. The nation is cut down and there's a burned forest and stumps are what is left of what was once a glorious kingdom. And one of these stumps in this forest is called the stump of Jesse. Now Jesse was the father of King David and God had made a covenant with King David that David would always have a descendant upon the throne of the nation. But things would get so bad in the nation that the house in the line of David would look nearly dead. It would look like it was, was gone. But this is what God does. He brings life out of death. He brings hope where the situation looks absolutely hopeless. He brings a comeback in the most unexpected of places. And for some reason, notice, Isaiah doesn't call this the stump of David. Wouldn't you expect it to be called the stump of David, the king? No, he calls it the stump of Jesse. Why is that? Perhaps it's because the monarchy in Israel and Judah had become so corrupt, so full of injustice and sin, that we can't just go back to David. We have to go back to the roots. We have to go back to where this all started. You see, David came from Jesse's family, and they weren't royal. They weren't rich. They weren't anything of note or significance. They were poor. They were peasants. And if you remember, David watched over the sheep. That was his job. And so it seems Isaiah is saying, We've got to get away from all of this pomp and circumstance that's led to this sin in the nation. We've got to go back to the roots. We've got to go back. And God is going to bring something out of this unexpected place. Out of this poor family, out of obscurity. And wasn't that true of Jesus' coming? 
out of a poor family who lived in Nazareth, of which the disciple Nathanael asked, can anything good come from there? Gosh, you wouldn't expect it. And so the disciple and gospel writer Matthew, he's, he's seeing a fulfillment here of Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus came out of and lived in Nazareth. Matthew 2.23, I have it on the screen for you. It says, Jesus went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, that particular phrase in Matthew here, this has caused a lot of confusion. A lot of, a lot of scholars are perplexed because there doesn't seem to be a place in the Old Testament at all which says that the Messiah would come from Nazareth, would come out of Nazareth. And people have looked and said, well, where is this? But actually the clue is right here in Isaiah 11. And it's a play on the words here, but it says, Isaiah is saying, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Now the word branch in Hebrew is the word netzer. So in other words, from his roots a netzer or a netzerine, a Nazarene will bear fruit. Isn't that amazing? From his stump, from this stump, from this nearly dead nation, a branch or a Nazarene would come and would bear fruit and bring this nation back to life and to vitality. It would be a Nazarene who would do it. Who is right there? So this is what the promised king will do. He's going to reestablish the throne of David. The second thing the promised king uh, will do is that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, the people had a long line of kings who were full of sin and wickedness and greed. They did not follow God's ways. They worshipped idols. They uh, had unjust practices and laws. They took advantage of being in power. And so it was because of this that the nation was experiencing judgment. And so if the people are going to experience anything different, it's going to have to be a new kind of king altogether because the old system wasn't working. And I, I like what scholar John Oswald says. He says, Unless the Messiah is truly endued with the Spirit of God, the results of his rule will be no different from those of an Ahaz. That's who is king for Isaiah. But if there should come one in whom God's Spirit could dwell completely and purely, that person could be the Savior of the world. If we'd have a king who is always filled with the Spirit, that person could save all creation. So if the monarchy was going to be reestablished, there, there was a need for a new type of king who would be filled with the Spirit. And this is what Isaiah says. Verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, oftentimes in the Old Testament, you might remember that the spirit would come on people for just brief periods of time. You think about Samson. The Holy Spirit comes upon Samson for a brief period, and Samson does some miraculous feat of strength, and then the, the spirit of God leaves. But no, this Messiah was going to be totally different. He would be a leader where the Spirit of God would rest upon him, would be always with him. And so when we get to the New Testament, and Matthew says, in Matthew 3, 17, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The promised king is here. He is the one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Isaiah talks about these, these seven gifts that the Holy Spirit would give to this king. And these are amazing qualities of any leader. Ask yourself if you would follow somebody who had these qualities. He would have wisdom. That is right judgment in all things. Understanding. He would be able to see to the heart of an issue. Counsel. 
the ability to decide the right course of an action, might, the power to follow through and do as you please, knowledge, the intimate relationship with God, fear of the Lord, reverent obedience towards God, and delight in the fear of the Lord. This is someone who would delight to do the will of the Father. Would you follow somebody like that? Who always exhibited those qualities at all times and in every way to the most amazing degree. That is what this promised king would do for us. He would be a totally different king. So the promised king is going to be filled with the Spirit. And number three, the promised king will judge the world. The promised king will judge the world. Now often... I think when we hear that phrase, we don't hear this message as good news, oftentimes. But many in Israel would certainly have received this idea as very good news for them. Because they wanted a king who would judge rightly and fairly. To make sure that justice was carried out in the community. To make sure the innocent and the oppressed were protected. And that the wicked and guilty would not get away with it. And the, but the problem was, for Israel, and it still is today, is it not that human beings have limited knowledge? We have limited understanding. So even our, the best of our judges, the best of our politicians, they will make mistakes. And on top of that, many people and many systems are easily corrupted by money, by bribery, by other, other kinds of things. But with this king, his judgment would be totally different. Look what Isaiah says in verse 3. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. You see, the king is not going to judge by anything of the outward appearances. The humans, we judge by everything on the outside, but God sees through to the heart of the matter. God sees the intentions and the thoughts and the motivations of the heart. God has infinite knowledge. I like what one scholar says. He says, absolute justice demands absolute knowledge. If you want justice to be carried out, you need to have the whole picture. You need to understand all the thoughts and actions and intentions of the human heart. And this is what this king will have. And then look what it says in verse 4. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. The poor, the oppressed, the needy, the outcast, they deserve and they will get the special protection of this king. And then it continues, it says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Justice for the poor, judgment for the wicked. This is what the people expected out of their king, out of their judge. And the wicked, it says, will be destroyed by his breath, by his word. And sometimes when we, when we see these things, we wonder, is that good news? Is that good news to the world? Well, I think it depends on your perspective. Certainly those who have lived under oppressive regimes like Assyria, Babylon, Rome, Germany in the 1940s, certainly the destroying and overthrowing of the wicked powers would have been good news, right? My goodness, thank goodness there is a king who's coming to set all things right. Guys, we have to remember, a good king cannot allow his creation to be continually abused and harmed and destroyed. And a good king will make sure that that will not happen to the people he loves. So he will judge the world, and that is how he will make the world right again. And this is what we proclaim in the creed. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And that's good news for us. It's good news because we don't have to judge the world. Jesus is going to do it. Jesus is going to be the judge, and he's the one who's going to set all things right. And frankly, he is the only one that has the proper character 
the one who is always filled with the Spirit, the one who has all knowledge, he is the only one we can entrust to do that. So we entrust that to Jesus, our Spirit-filled King. In verse 5, Isaiah says, Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. We can trust Jesus to judge the world, because he will always be infinitely righteous and infinitely faithful. He's a good king, and he will always do. The Lord of all the earth will always do what is right and just and fair and good. So we trust that to Jesus, and that's how he will set the world right. Number four, the promised king will usher in world peace. The promised king will usher in world peace. The next part of Isaiah's prophecy in verses 6 through 9 is this incredible vision of world peace. This passage is often referred to as the peaceable kingdom. You may have heard that phrase. And in this vision, Isaiah sees predators and prey, oppressors and oppressed, will live in peace with one another. The wolf is going to live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Who is this little child? Perhaps it's a picture of humanity's innocence, or perhaps it's a picture of, for unto us a child is born. We're not exactly sure, but it's an image of, the, of peace in this world. And Isaiah continues in verse 7, The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Okay, a child putting their hand into a snake's nest? I get nervous when Daisy climbs too high on a playground. All right? This is, this is kind of a crazy vision here, okay? But this is how radical. Children can play by snakes because there's going to be no more danger anymore. This is how radical the peace of God's new creation will be. Everything will be restored. Humanity and animals and nature and all creation will be in harmony. And there's a spiritual reality here too. Snakes, we know, have long represented, represented the enemy of humankind all the way back at the beginning. Satan is the big snake. And so in the new creation, there will be no more Satan or demons. They will all be destroyed. They will no longer wreak any havoc on God's creation. Everything and everyone will be at perfect peace when God renews all creation. This is why he says in verse 9, They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Did you guys catch that? Did you catch why the world is at peace? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. The world will be at peace because people will know Jesus Christ. The answer for world peace, both now and for forever, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer for our world to be at peace. They will know Jesus. And so Jesus will one day bring this vision to reality, but in the meantime, Jesus is working by his Spirit and through the church to bring this vision about even now. And one day it will be fully a reality. Some of you may be familiar with the artist Edward Hicks. Uh, he actually painted a vision of this peaceable kingdom uh, that I want to show you. It actually, he painted this uh, at least 62 times. Uh, some people say over 100 times. Uh, the picture is a little grainy, so it might be hard to see. But you have all the different animals together, the, the lion with the cow and all the animals being at peace, little children around them, not in danger of anything. But what I find is interesting is you, you probably can't tell from this picture, 
But in the back, there are Native Americans on the left, and the people to the right are European immigrants. And they're signing a peace treaty. Now, Edward Hicks lived in the 1800s, early 1800s. And uh, if you know a little bit about American history, you know about the violence between Native Americans and European settlers. And Edward Hicks envisioned a day when the violence would cease, when the strifing, the strife and the conflict and the, and the shooting and all of that would be put to an end and there would be peace between these groups. And don't you wish our European forebears would have caught a vision of the peaceable kingdom? We know how this played out. The vision wasn't a reality. The Native Americans were destroyed in so many ways. And the, and the irony is, these people were Christian. They knew about Jesus and his kingdom, but they didn't have a vision for the peaceable kingdom. Friends, all Christians, we need a, a vision of this peaceable kingdom so that we are not caught up, caught up in the divisions and the violence of this world. If you don't see where God wants to take the world, how are you going to know how to live right now? This is where God wants to take the world to a place where all people live in perfect harmony and peace. And if that is where God is taking the world, then we as Christians, we are the ones who bring that about even now as God works to extend and establish his kingdom. So you have to know where God wants to take the world if you want to know how to live. And so Isaiah's vision is this, this is the peaceable kingdom. This is where God wants to take the world. So we have to know the story that we're in. And this is the story that we're in, that God wants to restore the world through Jesus Christ. And so we need the vision of this today. Martin Luther King Jr. was one such person who knew about this vision of the peaceable kingdom. He said in his famous I Have a Dream speech that he said, I have a dream that one day in the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the son of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. See, Martin Luther King Jr., he knew where God wanted to take the world. A peaceable kingdom where all people live together in harmony. You see, the image of this kingdom is about people who were formerly at odds, formerly in division, formerly against each other. They're brought into a unity through the power of Jesus Christ. Oh, how we need this vision today. Because of Jesus, we pray for world peace, we work towards world peace, and we long for Jesus to come make this a reality in our lives until Jesus finally does all the work. But we have this promise. The promised king will usher in world peace, and he will do it one day. We believe. And finally, number five, the promised king will be king of the whole world. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. See, the king and descendant uh, of Jesse and David would be a banner for the peoples. The, the nations would rally to him, and he would be the, the calling call for all the world. So we've moved, we've moved way beyond that this is just a new king for Israel. This is actually a king for the nations, a king for the world, the king of the whole world. But I want you to notice, it said before, that the Messiah was the shoot coming, coming, coming out of the stump of Jesse. Now, in this verse 10, it is the root of Jesse. In other words, before, it was someone who was after Jesse, and now this is somebody who is the source and before Jesse. How can that be possible? 
Well, the answer is not given until we get to the Gospels. When the one who was before Jesse is now the shoot of Jesse. The one who was before Abraham is now the son of Abraham. The one who was the source of Solomon's wisdom is now Solomon's son. The one who was David's Lord is now the Lord of the world. The one who was the son of man is also the son of God, the rightful king of the whole world. Hallelujah. Let me recap this message of promise. The promised king will reestablish the throne of David. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will judge the world. He will usher in world peace. And he will be king of the whole world. We've come a long way from the forest being cut down and only stumps remaining. We've come a long way from there. The shoot out of that stump has become nothing less than the redemption of all creation. What an amazing promise from Isaiah. When the people thought things were hopeless, God was bringing, working out his plan to restore the whole world. And it's a message of hope for all of us. It's a message of peace. But it's also a message of what God can do in our lives. Most of you know that Laura and I unexpectedly lost a daughter last year when Laura was 27 weeks pregnant. We'd already picked out her name. Her name is Jessie Grace. And we picked her name because of this passage. Little did we know the significance it would have for her and for our lives. What we thought her life would be, what we thought our lives would be, was completely destroyed. We felt like the forest had been cut down. We felt like all the trees were cut down and burned up. I've never been through something so horrific in my life. Some of you are here this morning, and you have your own stump. You've lost a loved one. Your marriage is on the rocks or gone. Your children or your family or your life or your career did not turn out the way that you had hoped. And perhaps sometimes you feel like your life or your future is totally chopped down and destroyed. And I want you to know that I feel your pain. I feel it in a deep way. You might look around your life and feel like there's no hope for the future, there's no hope for peace. But I want you to know that I believe that Jesse's name was not an accident. I believe this promise applies to her life. A shoot of life will come up out of her death. Somehow, in some way, God is going to bring new life out of her and into our lives. And I don't know how yet. I don't know how. But I know that God will do it. I know that he will do it. God is the one who brings life out of death because Jesus conquered sin, hell, and death. New life can grow in the most hopeless situations possible because this is what God does. He brings shoots out of stumps. He brings life out of death. And I want you to notice also that the shoot is small. It's a small thing. Sometimes it may not be obvious what God is doing in your life. You may not even notice it at first. You may not even see it. Isaiah, he didn't get to live to see the Messiah. He didn't get to live to see the hope of his promises that he was proclaiming. And I do think God, in his grace, gives us moments of redemption that we can see, but often we don't see the full picture, do we? But we can trust. We can trust our good God. 
that he is the one who brings life out of death, hope to the hopeless, peace to the restless. This is who he is. This is what he does. He is in the business of resurrection. And he can bring new life to your life, to our church, to our world. He is the promised king, the one in whom we put our trust. And may, in, this, in this Christmas season, may you experience his peace, his hope that surpasses even my understanding. May you experience this season. Let's pray.